if you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome back, everyone. I am thrilled today to be joined by Art Markman. Art is a professor of psychology, human dimensions of organizations, and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is also vice provost of continuing and professional education and new education ventures. And you guys can't see him, but I can right now. And because of that, now he has a jacket on, he has a pin on his jacket. That's what meaning of being a vice provost now means for Art. So Art has written over 150 papers on topics including reasoning, decision-making, and motivation. He brings his insights from cognitive science to a broader audience through his blogs at Psychology Today and Fast Company, as well as his radio show and podcast, Two Guys on Your Head. He is the author of several books, including Smart Thinking, Smart Change, Brain Briefs, and Bring Your Brain to Work. And I've read many of Art's books now and read many of his articles over the years, only to realize as I've been reading more articles of late where I realized, oh my gosh, Art wrote this too. (laughs) So I was eager to speak with him and I'm very excited to have you here today, Art. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much, Kathy. It's great to be here. So let me let me start just with this first question. So as I said, you are a professor of psychology. You've written many books on cognitive science. You've done a lot of different things in your career to date. What made you want to apply your expertise to this topic of career management and the workplace? And you've done that in the book, Bring Your Brain to Work, and you continue to write about it. And I think putting out some really great and helpful articles right now on both Fast Company and HBR. But what brought you to kind of bring your brain to this topic? So I got to the middle of my, you know, early mid-career as a researcher, where a lot of my early career was focused on the typical academic thing of, of I'm going to teach my classes, I'm going to do my research, I'm going to write papers that get read by 30 of my closest colleagues. And, you know, and that was wonderful. I, I loved that environment. But as I got towards what appeared to be the middle of my career, I was trying to figure out what would be the ideal overall impact of of a career's worth of work. And I felt like just doubling the number of research papers and doubling the number of graduate students I trained and doubling the number of undergraduates I taught was not going to be the best way to have the maximum impact. And And so I started thinking about ways that I could bring a lot of the knowledge of my field outward to other people who might need it. Because as I I like to point out, almost everybody I know has a mind. Very few people know how that mind works, in part because we don't teach a lot of psychology in school, uh, certainly not K to 12, and and really not, not always afterwards. And people are clearly interested in it. So 
So what could I do to really bring that forward? And I started doing that in lots of different ways. I mean, I, I started blogging for Psychology Today in 2008 when nobody knew what a blog was. And, and really there, the focus was just on psychology in general. It wasn't necessarily applied specifically to workplaces. But in 2011, the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas asked me, uh, on the basis of my doing a certain amount of this outward-facing work, which included doing some consulting for companies, if I would be willing to help them to develop a liberal arts-based master's program that might help people in business. And that became a program that we called the Human Dimensions of Organizations, which brings the, the humanities, the social, the behavioral sciences to people in the business world and in nonprofits in the military, brings the, the liberal arts to them in order to make them people experts so that they're better at solving people-centered problems. And that definitely got me thinking a lot more about how exactly do we solve workplace problems with what we know about the way that people function. And so... I, I started to, to think about that a lot more and, uh, and, and then, you know, and then dumb luck plays a role. Um, I was, uh, I, I, I had a week where I spoke to four different reporters from Entrepreneur Magazine and, and an editor at Entrepreneur wrote me that and said, all of my reporters seem to be calling you. Maybe you should be writing for us. And so briefly, I wrote for Entrepreneur, and then that editor wrote me just a few months later to say that she had been uh, hired by Fast Company, and would I be willing to write for her there? I said, "Oh, oh yeah, absolutely." And uh, and and that was many years ago. Now I, I don't even know how far back that goes, but but I've been writing a weekly uh, piece for them for several years—five, six, seven years, something like that. And and the beauty of that has been the agreement I made with them was I don't, I will write about almost anything, but you have to tell me what you, what you want me to write about. So they, they give me the topic. And then I try to find some sort of workplace related spin on that. And so, um, and so it, it just, it evolved in that way. Uh, and, and it's, it's great fun because it, it then feeds back on all sorts of other things like uh, in 2020, I was asked by the University of Texas to, uh, to, to basically run a significant piece of the COVID planning process. And, and so what a great way to apply everything I've been writing about for so long that, you know, to, to, in, in, a, in a complex situation in which you can't possibly make everybody happy, uh, you know, it really was it really was just a wonderful way of of really putting to the test a lot of the things that I've been writing about for so long. So it, it's definitely been an evolution over over about that last 13, 14 years to the point where I am now. Yeah, what I love about your sharing that journey is is it relates to a lot of the things that you actually bring up in your writing and that you talk about in terms of career management. And so I might just go there in the sense of. You know, one of the things I've started to advocate is for people to think about career steps as kind of, hey, just think about it as your next adventure or your next career arc. And 
you talk about not editing one's focus on jobs or careers too early and like to essentially, it seems to like keep an open mind. (laughs) And you've also written about staying open to possibilities versus having a predefined career path. And so why do you think you know, it's not the best strategy to kind of go in like with this limited view versus, and you kind of just gave us some examples through your own experiences. Yeah. Well, look, I, if you edit your life story in the forward direction, you are constraining it to whatever it is you can imagine. And, and I promise all of your listeners, the world is way more interesting than anything you can imagine not because of limitations of your imagination per se, but because the world is a really interesting place and evolves in in all kinds of unexpected ways. And so if you if you keep your skills up and you and you are willing to learn all sorts of, of new things, then you if you stay open to those possibilities, you end up in places that you never imagined you'd be. And it's almost always really rewarding to do that. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, you talk about this idea, this value of having new experiences. And I like how you talk about always investing in your future growth. And I wanted to see if you could say a little bit more about this because I I sometimes don't always see people doing this. And, you know, for me, I kind of have sometimes the opposite thing. I, one of my core values is growth and learning. So I throw myself almost into too many things (laughs) too often. And so some of us might be more wired for that kind of investing in future growth and maybe other people are challenged by it. Like, what do you think about that? Or like, do you, have you found certain things that kind of foster people's curiosity and leaning into this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the first thing we have to do is to unprogram ourselves from the first 16 years of our education. Because if you think about it, you walk into classrooms from, from the age of five, and there's somebody else who's got a curriculum. So, so they have this idea that, that they know what it is you need to know, and they're going to teach you what you need to know, and then you're going to have to learn the stuff that they know. And and a lot of education is deeply weird in certain ways. If you think about it, you are constantly in your education life answering questions that the person who asked the question already knows the answer to, which is very strange in in the rest of life. I mean, your work life is going to be devoted to answering questions that nobody's quite sure what the answer is yet. That's why they're paying you to do the work you're doing. And so a a piece of what you need to unlearn is this idea that somebody out there actually knows what it is that you're going to need to know in order to be successful in the rest of your life. And that instead, what you have to do is to go out there and learn a bunch of stuff. Uh, Some of which you're learning because you're thinking to yourself, I need to know this in order to take the next step in my career. And some things you're going to learn without any idea how they're going to be useful And yet some number of them are going to turn out to be useful later. And you have to be willing to do both of those. And and so some people, I do think, are naturally set up to be really interested in these things. But, But I think there are a lot of people who, even if they gravitate towards those, still feel like I I gotta be productive. I have to learn the stuff that matters. And the problem is nobody can tell you in advance what's going to matter. You'll only know that later. 
I know this is so important. And this brings me to, I'm just, you know, listening to my nephew saying like, I'm never going to use that when I'm an adult anyway. And I'm like, actually, I use algebra often. So you may not realize it, but it's going to come up later. So it's kind of like needing to convince people a little bit of like. My question was, is always, how do you know? Mm, mm -hmm. Right. I mean, because the thing is, if you don't learn it, I can guarantee you'll never use it. Mm. But if you do learn it, you have no idea when it's going to come in handy. I, I, I tell a story. So my, I went to, I was an undergraduate at Brown university and, and, you know, Brown is famous for just not having any kind of core curriculum. You just sort of take stuff. And so my, my freshman year, my first semester, I thought, you know what, I am going to take the class. I'm going to, I'm going to find a class that has no, I'm never going to use it. Like I just, I'm going to find a class and just take it. And so I found this class in the catalog on, it was taught by an anthropologist and it was on utopian visions and utopian communities. And I thought this has no practical value whatsoever. I'm taking this class. And I, we read, you know, starting with Thomas More's Utopia, we read utopian literature, dystopian literature, uh, anthropological studies of, of, uh, communes and other utopian kinds of communities. Fascinating class. Fast forward to thinking about workplaces. And I have used some of this material to talk about the fact that for hundreds of years, people have been worried about the stress that's associated with modern life. And a lot of the the drive to write utopian literature has really been about navigating the incredible stress that people end up feeling of, you know, in order to be able to live in whatever the modern world is. And wouldn't it be great if we created a world that took care of everybody's needs so that they wouldn't feel that level of stress and, and the attempts to build utopian communities have that same characteristic to it. And what we really need to do is to understand more about motivation and stress rather than trying to get rid of all of the things that, that, that potentially make people feel stressed sometimes. And, and then to, 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 to work on developing workplace relationships. But the fascinating thing is the class that I was absolutely certain <laughs> I would never use any of the information. In fact, I took the class in precisely to demonstrate that I could take a class that had no redeeming value has actually informed my life many years later. I love that example. I love that example. And I also love that example just because you're also bringing forth like stress has always existed too. You know, it's it's a human condition. So we'll come back to that as well because I want to talk about that when we talk about productivity and what have you and what people are experiencing now. But before we move on from this topic, I want to just see, because you talk about the idea of jazz brain in Bring Your Brain to Work. And part of the reason I love this is because I think you labeled it this way or because you play jazz and you taught, you know, you learned the saxophone like I think you said, I think I read in your like mid thirties or late thirties. And, you know, that's hard to do for some people picking up an instrument like that. And I'm curious if you can say a little bit more about what you mean by jazz brain. Is it this just like, Hey, being willing to try new things, but you also talk about like people who are really good at jazz, you know, they play with their head and their heart. And I was wondering if you can kind of bring that in as well, in terms of the value of how you think about this concept. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Taking up the saxophone was yet another one of these things that, that I thought, well, I, I wanted to do it because I'd, I'd always, 
I always thought the saxophone was really cool and I never learned to do it. And I thought, well, I will regret not having done it. So let me go do it. And I did, but but again, I thought I was just doing this for enrichment. And then it's, it's had these weird ways of feeding back on, on everything else. Cause once you learn something, it's fair game for everything you're thinking about. And, and, and one of the topics that, that I brought up in, in bring your brain to work is I have these little jazz brain sections and I, and I talk a little bit about, uh, an observation that comes from a number of different books on improvisation that when you, when you learn to improvise uh, there's, there's what are, what are called head players and head players are people who know the music theory. They've learned the scales and they recognize, Oh, over this pattern of chords, I could use this particular scale or this particular approach. And so, and so they're playing based on the theory. And then there are heart players who are not necessarily thinking through the theory at any given moment, but rather expressing something that they're feeling or something that comes to them in the moment. And both of them require a fair amount of work to get to, but the best players are the ones who can do both. The ones who recognize, oh, I know what's going on in this song, given this chord progression. So I know some of the things that I'm allowed to do musically, but here's what I'm feeling at this moment overlaid on the the, the, the theory so that you merge the two in something that actually creates really beautiful opportunities. And I think, I think for all of us, you know, we, we learn the rules of our disciplines. We learn rules for how do I interact with people or how do I deal with customers in this situation or whatever it is. And we learn rules and then we have gut feelings that, that we develop. And, and in the best of all worlds, we're able to merge the two of those and, and draw insights both from I've, I've learned the relevant theory but I also just have a feeling based on, on the work that I've done. And, and, the, and when you bring the two of those together in a powerful way, it, it often allows you to do things that most other people wouldn't have come up with. Mm, I love that. I mean, essentially right there, Art, you're giving people, especially in business, to lean into their intuition. And many people really don't want to do that and really aren't advised to do that. Um, so what, I mean... I hear what you just said. I was listening and yet I could still see feel, have people feeling like, well, what gives me confidence that I should lean into that intuition? How do I feel confident using my heart? Yeah, I you know, I think that one of the 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 ways that you can be confident using your heart is to recognize that everything that you do in the workplace is subject to revision. So, so I think, I think a lot of times we treat plans more like television sets than like software. So if I buy a TV set and then I take it out of the box and I plug it in and it doesn't work, I'm upset because I paid for a product that was going to work. And so, and so, you know, the equivalent there is if I have this, this idea, I go with my gut and I have this plan and then it doesn't work. I think, oh, I failed. But think about it another way. If I purchase a piece of software and two days after I buy it, 
they automatically download a patch to it that fixes three bugs and adds another piece of functionality. I don't, I don't complain. I don't say, well, that software company, they sold me a piece of garbage. They had to fix it two days later. I have this expectation that it is going to be continuously improved and updated throughout its lifespan. And, and really, that's the way to think about the kinds of plans you generate at work is you start in the best possible place you can, playing a little bit with your heart and a little bit with your head. And then you see what happens and then you fix it. <laughs> and, and as long as you're willing to do that, then trying something because your intuition tells you that this is going to work doesn't commit you to a lifetime of that pathway. It says, I think this is a great direction to go in, even if I can't 100% articulate why. And if it doesn't seem to be working right, I will fix it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear that both in terms of like making business decisions and then also making career decisions. So that's what I really appreciate. And also because especially around career, well, any any of those types of decisions, because oftentimes there's so much angst around them and people are so afraid of making a mistake instead of just getting into action and then realizing you can change it, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And you're going to learn from it and, and it's going to inform the next round of decisions that you make. Yeah, for sure. Well, one of the things I wanted to come back to as well is this idea around defining success. And it's one of the things that I've been exploring and kind of what's the right way to kind of think about that. And you've written about like sustainable success. So I was wondering like, and it was going kind of going back to the, the bring your brain to work and our different brains that we bring to work. Like, is it right to think about this as tapping into one's motivational brain? And if people want to have like sustainable success at work, like what's important for them to focus on there? Yeah, I mean, one of the first things that everyone needs to do is to better understand what their core values are in the moment. Your values may change a little bit over the lifespan, but at any given moment, there are things that you deeply value. You know, Kathy, you talked a little bit about valuing growth and learning. And, and so, you know, it, with that value, part of success is I did a thing and I learned from it. Or I, I did some things, and as a result, I am a different person now than I was six months ago. And that's that's a success. That is not necessarily going to be a success for everyone. You know, some people value achievement. They, they, they are people who want to be seen as a success by others. So for them, it is, it is attaining a particular position of power or authority that might be deemed a success. And, and that is, if that is your value, that is a reasonable definition of success. It is not, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I, some people might say, well, no, you shouldn't define success that way. Well, the people who say that they shouldn't define success that way, but if that's my value, then, then I should, I should try to be true to that. And there are other people who are going to value benevolence. They're going to want to help other people. And, and so for them, it's all about what have I done to make the world around me a better place. And, and, and so I think it's really important to, to, to take that step back and ask yourself, what do I care about? Not, not what does, not not what do my did my teachers tell me I should care about or what do my friends care about what what do I care about and am I trying to do things that will help me to live that set of values because when I do that then 
the closer I can get to engaging in activities that allow me to express those values, the more that I am going to feel in a sustainable way that, that I am succeeding at, uh, at the work that I'm doing. And I think when people begin to feel like they are putting in a lot of effort and not succeeding, it is, it is often because the, the accumulation of the work that they're doing feels like a mismatch to some of those values. And, you know, look, I mean, we, we can all try things that, and, and, and they don't succeed. I mean, people start businesses and those businesses fail, but, but, you know, I think that the people who feel worst about the work that they're doing are not necessarily ones who started a business that failed, but who feel like they have to get up every single day and go to work to do something that doesn't really make them feel like they are living authentically to the things that they care about. I love a lot of what you just said, and it kind of leads into this next thing that I wanted to ask you, because there's there's kind of, to me, maybe because of things I'm listening to, there's a little bit of this debate happening around what is the role of work in our lives? And there's the conversation around, should it be a job? Should it be a career? Should it be a calling? So Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this. A woman, Sarah Jaffe, just wrote a book around work won't love you back and is kind of advocating, you know, it should be a job. And maybe so for some people. But I, I struggle with that a little bit because of what you just said, which is, well, gosh, if you're going to work every day and you can't find some alignment to values, like even if you're an actor or actress and you're waiting tables, you know, in order to kind of fund that activity, my hope is you're finding something rewarding in doing that waitressing or, you know, activity to, to fund that because otherwise it's just drudgery every day. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I understand the, the the mentality that says, you know what, it's it's a job. You're 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 just you're you're going to do it. It's it, it's never going to be as fulfilling as you want it to be. And I, you know, I I feel like, you know, that's that's in some ways truly the worst case scenario. So I think we have to recognize that that there are there are times where um, our jobs are not going to be fulfilling for us. Sometimes because the things that we most value and care about are things that are not work related. So so I if 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 what I really care about is my family. And and so my value is 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 to my family, my culture, my tradition, then maybe my job is just a way to put food on the table and and provide security for my family because that's what I care about and I want to make sure that my job provides me with the time that I that I need to engage with family and 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 my culture and my and my tradition and you know what that's great right because it's 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 also aligning your work life with with your values but i i do think that there are many values that people can hold in which their work life will allow them to to live that out there are plenty of people for example who who value tradition and then go work for a, a religious institution in order to in order to align their work life with things that with with other aspects of what are important to them. And and so I think that there there are definitely ways to try to do that. And I think that that it's 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 probably 
to my mind, the wrong way to think about it, to say work won't, won't love you back. The, the, the question is, will I love myself as, as a result of the kinds of things that I choose to spend my time on day to day? And so, you know, if, if I do the work I do because I'm thinking that my organization or my boss is going to be my source of fulfillment, I think that's a dangerous way to go because, because you're never going to get enough positive feedback from other people to make the amount of time that you spend at work seem worthwhile. But if you feel good about the outcome of the work you're doing, or if you enjoy the work itself, or if you feel like you are contributing to something that, that fits those core values, then you're not getting that positive feedback from the workplace per se, or your boss. You're getting it from your own interaction. It is the intrinsic joy that comes from doing something on a daily basis that actually allows you to live your values. And, you know, to me, I mean, I wake up, I've, I've been, a, I've been on the faculty at a university for 31 years. I still wake up thinking I have the best job ever and that I love the things I do. I mean, it's not, it isn't quite the same job now that it was 30 years ago, but it, it, I, I still consider myself lucky to be able to do the kinds of things that I do, but not because somebody else is telling me anything about, uh, about the work. It's, it's because I feel like each day I'm allowed to go in and do things that fit completely with where I'd like to be. I love that. And I feel like there's so much wisdom in that. I was just reading before we got on a stat from Gallup that was saying that, and I, and then this stat was actually a little bit lower than what I feel like I've seen in the past, but it was saying that um, only about in the low 20% uh, of people are engaged in their work. And this is something I'm starting to get a little passionate about myself because it comes back to what you're talking about, Art. And I think it's coming up today also in this hybrid work environment where people are kind of individuals and employees are almost expecting their employers and their workplaces and their bosses to help to ensure they're engaged instead of looking to themselves to make sure they're engaged in their work. So what do you think about that based on what you shared? Or do you think I'm wrong there or any other insights? Well, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting perspective because I, I think that, that, you know, at the end of the day, no one can make us engaged. We, you know, in motivational engagement, comes from a, a motivational energy comes from a gap between where we are and where we'd like to be. So, so the, you know, and, and so um, a lot of what we do to give ourselves energy to do something is to say uh, either there's a desirable thing I don't yet have, and I'd like to have it. So I'm going to pursue it, or there's an undesirable thing that's going to happen if I don't do something, so I'd better do something. And where a lot of us fall down is we, you know, those gaps where there's an undesirable thing that's going to happen unless I act, those are what are called avoidance gaps because there's a thing that, that I have to avoid. I, uh, and, and the way I avoid it is by taking an action to make sure that that doesn't happen. 
we end up structuring a lot of our work and a lot of our lives, frankly, in terms of these avoidance gaps. If I don't do this thing, then this, then I'm going to lose this client. Or if I don't do this thing, my boss is going to get mad at me. Or if I don't do this thing, then, you know, my family isn't going to eat. And, and in fact, when you define your life in terms of responsibilities, a responsibility is almost always uh, an, uh, around, uh, related to an avoidance gap because it, it, a responsibility says, if I don't do this thing, something bad's going to happen. And the problem with those avoidance gaps is that they create anxiety and stress because when you're in the presence of a potential threat or calamity and you haven't yet avoided it, you're stressed about it. And, and, and so uh, the reason so many people see their work as a constant stressful experience is because the only way they can motivate themselves or the only way that their boss can motivate them is by telling them that if they don't do the stuff that they're supposed to do, something bad is going to happen. And the thing about chronic stress and anxiety is it's painful. And, and when you successfully avoid the threat, you, you aren't happy about it. You're relieved. Nobody ever says, I do my work each day in the hope that I might experience just a little relief. You know, we want, we want to be satisfied or happy or joyous with the work we do, which can only happen when you pursue some desirable outcome, when you create what's called an approach gap. There's a beautiful, wonderful, desirable thing out there in the world, and I want to go get it. So if, if I wait for my boss to tell me how to get motivated, there is a high probability that the only way my boss is going to be able to do that is by telling me what's going to go wrong if I don't do the work that I'm supposed to do. It is hard to structure a work environment in which bosses are focused on, if we all do this thing, this wonderful outcome is going to happen. I mean, you know, we try but it's much easier to say, yep, but now I need this report on my desk by five or so help me, <laughs> you know? And, and so I think that, that we as individuals are much better at finding those approach gaps for ourselves, for, for, for saying, you know what, I'm excited to go do this because I'm interested in what's going to happen if I do this task or if I learn this thing or if I engage with this person, how much fun could I have having this kind of conversation with somebody? And, and so if I take more of the responsibility for motivating myself, I have more control over whether I focus on the, the beautiful, desirable things that I can create with the work that I do. And, and so that's why it's, it's dangerous to cede control over your motivation to somebody else, because they may structure the work environment in a way that is, that is designed to create stress. When I could probably take the same work environment and frame it in a way to focus on how cool is it that today I'm going to get to do this thing. Mm, mm. I love that. A lot, a lot to work with there and to kind of take back 
you know, really empower people to kind of take back control and take back control of their own happiness as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I know you've been writing a lot. It's really kind of, that's relevant, I think, for a lot of what people are even feeling today in the workplace. And then there's kind of this, like the burnout factor that people have been experiencing and kind of oftentimes, and I'm even going to frame it this way, and I don't know if this is the right way to actually frame it, Art, which is, you know, to talk about productivity a little bit. But I mean, you've been writing a lot about how people are working recently. Like, are you working too many hours? Um, Is working more, doesn't necessarily make you more effective at your job, that actually working less can make you productive or that boredom is good, for example. So have you found anything to be most effective to get people to kind of shift their thinking around this, either, either for individuals or for, or work environments as well, in terms of how do we really think about like, how much should we be working and what's the best way to be working? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's of course a big question and, and there's, there's lots of intersecting pieces, but just a few things to, 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 you know, to, to try and get a, a little bit of a, of, of a different way of thinking about this. You know, the first is to remember that when you when you work a lot of hours, a lot of times you spend your time checking things off your to do list. And so you you accomplish a lot of individual tasks without necessarily ensuring that the collection of things that you did adds up to something more significant. And so, you know, I think it's really important to recognize that that a lot of what gives us fulfillment in the work we do is that we feel like we've made some kind of contribution, that we've done something that actually has some significance to it. And so it's important to 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 really look at that relationship between the specific things I'm spending my time doing and uh, and and whether they add up to something, you know, if you if you look back to the 1950s and you know literature, you know books like Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, you know what what made that so depressing and stultifying was he, he, you know, the main character goes to work every day and has a bunch of meetings, but doesn't really see that that adds up to anything that matters. I mean, partly it was actually a values issue that he was realizing the work that he did didn't didn't mesh with his values. But partly it was he also couldn't really figure out how the day to day tasks actually mattered for anything more significant. So, you know, I think it's important not to not to confuse checking a lot of things off your to do list with productivity, really. It's it's productive in the sense that you can point to a lot of things you did, but it, it isn't necessarily productive in in being uh, in amounting to something more significant. So I think that's one piece. You know, the other thing that's really important to remember is that the more occupied you are all the time, the less opportunity you have to do things that will enable you to be really creative or innovative in any way. Being being able to be creative and innovative requires learning some things that you didn't think you were going to need to know. It requires stepping away from some of the tasks you're doing sometimes in order to give yourself the opportunity to view them in a different way. It requires having a little small talk with people getting to know them and what they're what they're working on it it requires building trust with people which often involves doing things 
you know, having conversations and doing things that aren't necessarily obviously productive in the moment, but they build a relationship that's going to be useful in the long term. So I think I think the more that we focus on how do I make sure I get a thing done right now, the the more that I'm likely to do things that are easy to check a box off of, but but are are maybe less likely to get me to do something that that really adds up to the most important thing. And taking some downtime so that you can come back to the problems that you're trying to solve in a more refreshed way, learning some things that don't have obvious value, solidifying those workplace relationships, and and also just trying to discover some of the joyous things that happen at work. So I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a fun story. I, I I was talking a little bit about this idea of stress and happiness that I that we were talking about a little bit earlier with with some folks at a, at a hospital, and I I said you know one way to try to remind yourself of the joy that can come out of work is actually to start meetings with a joy moment. So, you know, in, in, it turns out in, in the construction industry, they have safety moments because safety is so important. So they always focus on, a, on some key safety tip. So by analogy to that, maybe start your meeting with a joy moment. And I said, so let's practice. I said, can somebody tell me uh, something joyful that happened recently? And I kid you not, the first person to speak was a hospital administrator. And he, and he said, well, the hospital was under investigation for a potential rules infraction. And we found out today that we were cleared of any wrongdoing. I said, that's not a joy moment. That's a relief moment. Try again. Mm. And they all like stared up at the ceiling for a while and they're thinking about it. And then somebody raised their hand and she said, well, uh, we had a five-year-old come to the ward that we work on and he had been a patient for a while and now he's feeling better and he brought us all lollipops. I said, you know what? Five-year-olds with lollipops, that's a joy moment, <laughs> right? That's the reminder of why you do what you do. And, and I think we, we all need to take the time to look for those. And, and to remind ourselves of, yeah, this is why we bring about desirable outcomes with the work that we do. And even people who are working in a hospital where there are real threats because there are people who are really sick are creating joy through the work that they're doing if they take the time to find it. Mm, yeah. Well, part of what I hear you kind of saying in this too is being really discerning and thoughtful about and intentional with how you use your time. And I think one of the things that I hear, I was just on a call earlier today where a lot of senior people were just like the barrier is time, 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 time. I don't have time to think. I can't carve out time for strategic thinking, et cetera. And part of what I hear you saying is like, you need to be intentional around it. And I'm wondering you know, is there any cognitive tips? Like, are there any things that kind of work in helping people kind of really actually make this a practice? Yeah. I mean, one of the things you have to do is actually get it on the schedule. So if you're living in a, in a world in which you have lots of meetings and lots of phone calls and things like that, then you've actually got to schedule things that are, that are not things. So I have a, I have a little, 
uh, a little thing I put on my calendar. I, I have two things I do. One is I'll just put a hold on my calendar sometimes, but those those sometimes get pulled off because people like you don't really need that. So I have I'm not going to reveal the name in case any of my people who handle my calendar over here, but I have, I have some people that I meet with who aren't people. So I just put a meeting on the calendar with, you know, this person. And then, and, and, and I know that that's, that's my time. Uh, and, and, and so you can do that. I think the other thing you need to be willing to do is, is, is a lot of us feel like, well, I'm not really hundred percent in control of my time. I, I have a boss who's, 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 you know, making sure that I take care of particular things. I think it's important to talk with your supervisor, with your boss and say, you know what, I need a little bit more time to, to be able to think more strategically about what I'm doing. Here's the list of core priorities that you've given me. Is there, what on this list do you think I can either deprioritize or perhaps delegate to somebody else in order to give myself the time that I think I need in order to be more effective? And I think people are often really receptive to that. They they don't want to just take stuff off your plate for no reason. But if if you've got a legitimate reason that's going to really help you to be more effective, I think most people want to work with you to help you make that happen. Mm, I love that. Well, I could talk to you for a long time. <laughs> and so, and you've already given us so many things to really think about and take away from this conversation that are really practical that can, you know, frankly, make us more fulfilled and happier with our work on a day-to-day basis and over time. Uh, and yet I'd like to just close with like, is there still yet another, a final piece of advice or takeaways that you might leave people with in terms of how to think about managing their career from a, with a lens of sustainable ambition, both over time or kind of managing in the moment. Yeah. Well, I, I think that on top of everything we've, we've talked about, I think it's really important to invest in your work relationships with people. Uh, I, one of the things about, about the work from home environment, and, and even though I actually have been coming to my office every day for the last year, I still feel like in some ways I'm working from home in the sense that most of my colleagues are not actually working from, from, uh, campus. So, so it's, it's, it's just a work from home environment in which I happen to be in a different room. But, uh, I think we need to invest in those relationships that the, the ones that we used to have by bumping into a, a colleague in the hallway or, or grabbing a cup of coffee with somebody or taking them out to lunch. You know, I think, I think we need to, to have that small talk, those conversations, find out how people are doing, you know, in really, really humanize all of our colleagues. You know, if, if you have a big mass Zoom meeting, you can't have those little side conversations because only one person can talk at a time. So, so, you know, while you're commuting or, or, or exercising or doing something else, think a little bit about the people you're not seeing as often. You know, a lot of people report in the work from home environment that their strong ties, the people who are part of their team, they, they see all the time they're working with really effectively. What has suffered during this period of, of, of uh, you know, as we've gone to these flexible work arrangements are what are called the weak ties, the people who bind you to a different organization or a different part of your own organization. So think a little bit about, here's somebody I used to bump into every once in a while, walking from one building to another at the water cooler in, in this one set of meetings that we're not having as much anymore, whatever it is. 
think about that, those people, make a list, and then stick on your calendar uh, a reminder to reach out to them to have just a short conversation, you know, with no particular agenda in mind, to make sure that you maintain those relationships, because those relationships also help to sustain you. They, they are a reminder that you're part of a community that that, that 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 community has a shared set of values that you're a part of and that those people are a part of your life even through your career transitions and 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 so you know i i think we have to recognize look we're, we are a deeply social species we have to we have to feed that and i think that that's that's something that that we have lost a little bit of you know, during the pandemic because of the changes in the workplace. And, and I'm not saying that it's necessarily worthwhile to be all back in the office five days a week in order to make that happen. I think there's a lot of wonderful things that have happened because people aren't commuting and other things. But let's now be a little bit more mindful of shoring up some of the weaknesses of that work from home environment. Mm, I love that. And I'm so glad you brought that up because you also write a lot about just how those relationships are really important overall to your happiness and keeping yourself sustained. So, well, Art, people have learned from you in this conversation. I'm definitely going to bring joy moments in uh, into my days and into my meetings. And I know that people can find you with your writing um, on Psychology Today, Fast Company, HBR. You have the podcast, Two Guys on Your Head, if they want to learn from you. Is there other places where they should look for you or find you? Well, probably the easiest thing for people is I'm on LinkedIn. In. I post there pretty frequently. I've got a, I've got my Twitter feed. I've got an author page on Facebook. So, you know, find me there. I do, I, I try to make sure that, that the stuff that I put out, you know, that I, that I post links to it and, and, uh, and, and anyone who follows me on any of those places, as you know, you know, feel free to reach out either, you know, comment on something or send me a message. You know, I just, I, I mean, I, I, I care a lot about these issues and I, I just love to engage with people who care about them. So. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for being on with me today. It was a pleasure to be in conversation. Well, thanks, Kathy. I appreciate it. It's great, it's great talking to you today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice-monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.